0: We study billionaires, and this is episode 85 of The Investor's Podcast. Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is The Investor's Podcast. They'll read the books and summarize the lessons. They'll test the waters and tell you when it's cold. They'll give you actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Stig Brodersen. Hey, how's everybody doing out there? This is Preston Pish, and I'm your host for The Investor's Podcast. And as usual, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Brodersen, out in Denmark. And I'll tell you what, we're going to have some people really excited about today's show because our guest today is the one and only Jack Schwager from the famous compilation of books titled, The Market Wizard Series. Here's a little bit on Jack, and I know that people listening to the show already know who you are. A lot of people listening to the show already know who you are, but if they don't, I'm just going to give a quick background so people know who you are, Jack. Jack got his degree in economics from Brooklyn College and also a master's in economics from Brown University. He's probably one of the most accomplished financial writers in the world, and he's interviewed countless billionaires and prodigies within the financial community. When you read one of Jack's books for the first time, you'll quickly realize that the person who's asking the questions in the book, which is Jack, is at par and just as smart as the person who's answering the questions. So Jack's the author of Market Wizards, The New Market Wizards, Stock Market Wizards, Hedge Fund Market Wizards, The Little Book of Market Wizards, The Complete Guide to Futures Markets, and Market Sense and Nonsense. So these books are not like 100-page books, all those books that I just listed. They're not like these short little 50-page or 150-page kind of books. In some cases, Jack's interviewed up to 20 different people that are total prodigies within finance, like Ray Dalio. We talk about Ray all the time on our show. Jack's actually sat down and had an interview with billionaire Ray Dalio. So that's just one of the hundreds of people that he sat down and actually interviewed. So with all of that, Jack, I want to jump to the questions because the last thing I want to do is be the guy talking the whole time. We want to push the talking over to you so you can just share your knowledge with our community because this is really exciting to have you on our show. So thank you for joining us.
1: Oh, thanks for that intro. Appreciate it.
0: So my question up front, knowing the, the caliber of people that you've sat down with, Jim Rogers, I mean, there's some people that you've interviewed that I'm big fans of. What was the one investor that you've interviewed that you were most impressed with. And what would be that one key takeaway that you had from that person's approach that you still keep with you today? What would be that one person and that one thing that you took away from all these interviews?
1: You know, it's like asking who's the uh, greatest baseball player ever. You know, <laughs> it's impossible to answer, <laughs> really. I mean, totally. So I'm just going to not talk about these people now because we'll probably get into some of them later. But just to throw out what I mean by that, you take uh, somebody like Ed Thorpe, who had a, one of the best track records ever. I mean, so extraordinary that in one book, I calculated the probability of getting that track record as being less than the amount of atoms in the entire mass of the earth. Now you take somebody that, and and by the way, his record in terms of risk of return risk makes Dalio look like uh, he doesn't know what he's doing, obviously. <laughs> yeah, but on the other case, <laughs> on the other case, Ray Dalio has made more money for investors than any other hedge fund or any other. Fund. Oh, I don't know. I don't know the mutual fund world, but any hedge fund that has ever existed, I think Dalio has made more money for the investors, as far as I know. Then you have somebody like Michael Marcus, who I know because I worked at the same firm that he did. That turned a thirty thousand dollar account to eighty million dollars in the course of about a dozen years. You've got you've got uh, somebody like uh, John Bender, who was a uh, a brilliant uh, options trader who made literally hundreds of percent a year uh, physics background. I can go on and on and on. So how do you say who, and I haven't even mentioned people like Kovner, incredible investors ever had somebody like Miller, like a 40-year track record with near 30% returns compounded. So how do you pick the best one? It's just not the most impressive one. In terms of pure intellect and accomplishment. If you put a gun to my head, it might be Thorpe and Ed Thorpe. Now, for your audience would probably know Ed Thorpe best not from his money management side, but they would know him because he wrote this famous book. Actually, his book sold more books than I did, Beat the Dealer. So uh, that was not his only book, but that, would, that Beat the Dealer was the first book to tell people how, how to win a blackjack.
0: But, That's the one that they built the whole movie around, where they ha- they went to yeah, Vegas uh, and they were counting cards. So,
1: yeah, so actually, it goes. It's even more credible than that. I'm just going to give you a few of the things here. Here's a guy starts out, comes from a very poor background, grew up in uh, depression. He teaches himself physics in, in high school. Gets accepted. I forget the which California, one of the you know one of the top universities in California. Gets, well, he doesn't have his PhD yet in physics. He was writing his, ma- his uh, thesis for, for his physics degree, decides he doesn't know enough math, goes and starts taking graduate math courses, gets his PhD in math, never actually goes back and writes his thesis. So he doesn't technically have a PhD in physics. Then gets the idea that he'd like to beat casinos. Uh, it sounds completely preposterous. How can you beat, uh, not by cheating, by the way. And so the first scheme he comes up with is, to, is roulette. Now, when I first heard the concept that hey somebody says they could beat roulette, I said it's impossible because we're thinking probability. Yep. But you don't think in terms of Newtonian physics. That <laughs> what he what he literally got, thought about was well if you could time it well enough you could get by the physics if you got this velocity of the ball between two different points and you, you knew its momentum and everything else you could predict a probability of which octet. Of this wheel was more likely this is back in the 60s so we didn't have like no back in the 60s i remember the 60s even the late 60s i remember using an ibm 360 which took up a better part of a room and you had to use punch cards to do you know regressions or something like that so and he in the 60s developed this miniature computer way ahead of his time and so this thing worked. They played for like minimal amounts of money. They just wanted to prove the concept. They had like a 40% edge in roulette. Then he came up with, then he read a paper by some guys, some math guys in, I forget where, that they were saying win the blackjack from a mathematical standpoint. But when he came in with the insight was, hey, it's not a matter of how you just bet, because that's what these guys were trying to do. They were saying, if you bet all the right ways, if you hold on 16, you know, take the card, you know, the typical standard rules if you did all the right bets, that actually turns out you still aren't at the edge. You're coming very close. But he thought he got the brilliant insight. Wait a minute. Who says you have to bet the same thing every time? So he kind of figured out that if you change the size of the bet, like when the more cards out, then you know you bet more, more picture cards out, you bet less, more, you know, less, you bet more, that that could totally change your probabilities. And he was doing this and realized it would take him years and years, or actually more than years, maybe decades to do. So he had to find shortcuts, but he figured it all out and came up with this, a couple of methods actually, and then simplified. And he had, I put a book, a story in a book where there was an attempt on his life, well, I just like out of the movies, like his car was fixed, sort of, and brakes wouldn't work, going down a hill. But in any case, so he did that, put out the book. They, that was the book that changed uh, the casinos. We you know the multiple decks, all of that. That's because of him. Oh, yeah, so,
0: so, Jack, would you say that the thing that you took away from Edward Thorpe was just
1: his pure intellect? Was he just... Was- yeah, that was the thing that impressed me, was just the intellect, just a just raw intellect. He was a really nice guy, too, I got to tell you. I met a lot of brilliant people, but I mean, Thorpe is Thorpe probably the smartest guy I ever spoke to. And I've known people that made me feel stupid, but he didn't. when I say made me feel stupid, I don't mean that he made me feel stupid it's just in comparison to his intellect, I just feel, but, you know, I'm, we're just not.
0: Was it, Is he, he like a voracious reader that got him there or is he just?
1: It's just raw intellect. I just think he's got that talent. And, and, and that's how we beat the markets. He started to apply this intellect, this pure quant intellect to, to markets. And then you go on, first guy to start a market neutral fund. All these strategies, he's the first guy that does it and figures out how to do it and gets the edge. So not only brilliant, but innovative, thinking outside the box, uh, he was the first guy to think of it. So he's an amazing guy and people don't really know him to the extent they know some of the other big names. Uh, they know not for the, for the beat the dealer book because it changed casinos and all that but they, they don't know his hedge fund.
2: Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jack, I think he came up with a pricing model for warrants long before black schools like you know get all the fame for for the options theory. Thank
1: you for reminding me. Yeah, maybe the biggest thing is everybody knows the Black Scholes model. Nobel Prize was given for the Black Scholes model. The amazing thing is Thorpe's trading the a mathematical equivalent of the Black Scholes model five years before that that article was ever published. He could have been the Nobel Prize winner, right? But that's not. He said he was like the only guy in the world who knew to price options, and he was just printing money. So he was for that until that article came out. He was just. He had like a, a printing press of money because he just <laughs> he just couldn't lose. He knew how to price options nobody else did. He's like, I've already been doing that. I've been making millions of dollars doing that. <laughs> yeah, That's part of the record. That Part of his record is because he came up with all these things ahead of everybody else. That's how you get a record of something like, I think it was about 277, I forget the exact number months, three losing months out of 277, and all three of those were less than 1%. And that's why I say, you know, the probability that's why the probability works out to be less than the you know, less than picking one atom randomly out of the mass of the earth.
2: Wow. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm so happy, Jack, that you mentioned uh it Thorpe. I haven't told this story on the podcast and this will be for another time, but he's actually the reason why I'm standing here today. So I'm so happy that you actually uh you mentioned Oh well it. you
1: should say go go on. I mean I'll I'll talk enough on this pro I'm curious <laughs> how how that happened.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's just very, very briefly. I, I read some of his uh, material uh, early on and was just very fascinated about his way of looking at everything as a game. I think perhaps that's really his, his true gift. And perhaps that was also why he didn't you know, necessarily win the Nobel Prize. I mean, that was not the game he was playing and how he was looking at casinos. And then afterwards, how he was looking at stocks and how he was pricing options. And I think I started reading that around the age of, I want to say, 20 or something. And and that, that was really what made me make the decision to go into all this uh, that we're doing now, even though it's just a long time ago. So I feel I owe him a lot. And uh, it's just rare that we have a chance to, to really talk about him and how influential he's really been on, on so many people and in and, and so many different ways. For me, he's one of the most underrated out there. Uh, into his own field, which is basically just really, really sad. Perhaps he, because he didn't want the fame, who knows?
1: Yeah. He's kind of not, the, he tends to be on the quiet. Not, he doesn't seek publicity for sure. You know, On the contrary. Let's take a quick break
3: and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest stay. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at meka.com. That's m e y k a.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable, heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right,
2: back to the show. Um, We were completely uh, shifting gears here, Jack. So one thing that I know that we completely agree upon is how important it is to have independence in your strategy. Whether it is investing or trading. And you have this quote from the famous trader Michael Marcus saying, You have to follow your own light. So, still, we can get swayed by other people that we consider really smart, even if these people might follow another strategy. So, I would like to ask you could you please tell your personal story about not shorting the yen back when you were director of futures market?
1: This was after I'd done the first book. And it was, I'm not going to mention a name here deliberately, but one of the traders I interviewed. Would call me from time to time, and he would call me and ask my uh, technical opinion on the markets. And I never knew why, because he he was like a million times better trader than I was. Why he would want my opinion, I don't know. But he would he would do that, and I would we talk. So one day he calls, and we're going through the markets. And it had to put the put this in context. Okay, this was a year I started off. I made money. I was ahead. Then dribbling of money. I was losing, losing, losing. And I'd given them back most of the money I made. I was still ahead, but not by very much. I decided to sort of cut back. Uh, I had like one position left of any consequence. Maybe I had something else, but just really one. And he gets to that market. as a Japanese Yen. Got to picture this what the chart looks like. It had had a very sharp decline, like a falling off the cliff. And then it went into a very, very tiny consolidation, really, really thin. And he gets it again. I said, Well, you know, when I've seen a pattern like this where the market's down extremely steeply and then goes into a tiny consolidation, most of the time it'll go down again. And he says, Well, no, Jack, you know, he gives me 58 reasons why. I said, Hey, you know, well, you're probably right. It's just an opinion, you know. So, <laughs> anyways, so I hang up the phone and I knew, like I said, I knew I should not listen to other people. I, I mean, I knew that. And I normally wouldn't, I really think I wouldn't have. However, this is where fate intercedes. That afternoon, I had to travel for a few days to go to Washington, DC. I knew I had a lot of meetings, I'd be busy, I would, I didn't, this was pre, pre, iPhone, you know, pre, obviously pre you know, smartphones and all that. And I wasn't gonna even have a computer of any sort to look at anything. So I, I said to myself, well, you know, haven't I haven't been, I have been doing so well lately. I've got this one trade for good profit you know, here's one of the smartest guys, one of the best traders I know, who's on the opposite side of this trade. Do I really want to fade him on the trade? So I go over to the overnight desk and I get out of the position. Okay. I come back a couple of days later. I don't know where the market is. I follow the market, come back a couple of days later. You and your listeners will probably know the next thing. You know, sure. the ends down a few hundred points, right? Okay. So that's no surprise. We know that's going to happen. Now, here's where the surprise is. And this is, I tell people, honestly, I'm not making this up. I couldn't make this up. That day, he calls again. I wasn't going to be so gauchous to bring up the end, you know, and it's like, hey, everybody could be wrong. I'm not going to say anything, but he brings it up. So I say, hey, hey, are you still long? And he exclaims to me, long? He says, I'm short. Now, what <laughs> I didn't tell you, what I didn't tell you is, for me, I traded positions, particularly at the time, for like months at a time, you know. He, uh, for him, a long-term trade was like two days. When he was speaking to me, he was bullish because he was looking for a bounce. The market probably didn't bounce. He probably decided it wasn't acting right, or maybe went down a little bit, got out, went the other way. So he made money, and I was right all along, ended up not making anything. So it's like a perfect example. You can't listen to anybody. It's going to mess you up. And going back to Marcus, uh, that great quote, you have to follow your own light, Mm -hmm. The rest of that quote, paraphrasing is, you could take the best traders in the world, two of the best traders in the world, and put them together, and you'll get the worst of each. And incidentally, he was speaking about, I know he was speaking about, Michael Marcus hired Bruce Covner, who then went on to form Caxton, one of the great legends of, 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 trading, of trading and investing. He had hired a Kovner, and for a time, they traded from the same office. So they talked, whatever. So when he says that, he's talking about himself and ta- and Comforter. So literally, two of the world's best traders, and he's still saying that if they don't stay true to their own approach, they're still going to get messed up if they try to trade like the other guy does.
0: I've got a kind of a follow up question that really hits at the point you're getting at, and that's matching your style or your personality with your investing approach, and it has to do with Jewel Greenblatt. So I know that you are close with Joel. I know he's endorsed some of your books. You've interviewed him a couple times. And Joel has some books out there that really kind of take Warren Buffett's approach and make it a lot simpler. And he calls it his magic formula. And after interviewing him, do you think that people out there could simply pick up his two books and really kind of implement this magic formula and get the fantastic results that he's had? And and please tell our audience Joel Greenblatt's results because he has really high returns right, yeah, in the years. Uh, yeah. And, and we, what kind of personality do you see that really kind of gets attracted to the Joel Greenblatt
1: approach? i heard of Greenblatt and then I've dug up the track record and then it ended like, I did the book in 2012. His track record it ended, I think it ended in 1995. That's a while ago. Now it was a very interesting track record. It's, it was about 10 years long. It had all winning years, of course. The worst year he had was like a profit of about 28%. That was his low year. And that was like, you know, that was and remember, in that in that period, you had 87 crash, you had 94, which is a bear market. And his worst year was a positive 28, 29%. So and then with the NAV at an all time high, the fund disappears. My first question, the green blank, was why did you close the fund? I mean, who closed it? <laughs> Who closes a fund in ten years with the worst year is plus twenty eight percent? He said that he had just gotten too big that he couldn't do the trades managing other people's money because he was he was doing a, a lot of uh, sort of value oriented trades which might have been uh, involved some smaller cap stocks. They couldn't do them
0: like he was doing net nets on small cap. Is that yeah some accurate? stuff like that? He, yeah,
1: he was doing different. He was doing a lot of a lot of different strategies, but it's the Buffett philosophy of buying of, of a value orientation. And so that's what, that is, at his heart, That's he's so told in it is bones. And in fact, I'll go to your question, I'll get to your question in a moment about whether people can use the formula. Let's, let me just give you this aside, because part of what I do for the interview, I try to do different things to get to know people in the interview process. It's not just, like I sit down with them for one hour or whatever. But in Greenblatt's case, I met with him a couple of times, but I also went, he was teaching a course at Columbia, he was teaching a course on the markets on the graduate school level in Columbia. And uh, so I sat in on one of the courses for this particular session. He had said, well, okay, today I'm going to be Buffett. And you guys ask me questions, you know, you ask me questions and I'll answer them. And so the class was asking questions. He's answering them and they were getting completely confused. They said, well, wait a minute. Are you answering this as Buffett or are you asking me this as Professor Greenblatt? They didn't, they couldn't tell. I couldn't tell either. It's, it sort of went back and forth between the two. So, Basically, this whole question of, and let me give you this other thing, which will set up, which will answer your question indirectly, but in a more interesting way, as where well people can use a formula. So he did the study using this magic, magic formula or more advanced form of it or whatever, and then he ranked the stocks going forward based upon a formula. And it turns out that the top decile over a longer period of time, the top decile, you know, did the best. The second decile did the second best the third decile and the lowest decile did the worst and lost a little bit of money so my first question you know being a kind of an analytical guy and all the, the, the first question that sort of pops up to my mind which is so obvious is hey why buy the top decile why don't you buy the top decile and sell the lowest decile simultaneously you'll have a balanced portfolio presumably much less risk and actually more return because the lowest SL actually lost a little bit of money so to me it seemed like hey that's such an obvious thing how come you didn't do that so he says yeah that's a good question that's also a question a number of my students asked and they said there's only one reason that i didn't do that he said i would have gotten wiped out if i did that and the reason he explained was good example late 1990s late 1990s Stocks are going crazy. Everybody thinks, well, trend is full market, you know, S&P's up percent NASDAQ's going through the roof, internet, the internet craze. Stocks are going from 10 to 200. Okay, everybody knows all that stuff, right? If you get that, really, the value stocks, a lot of value stocks aren't only going up, they might have been losing money, right? So you've got an atmosphere here where the worst garbage is going on its way from 10 to 200 before it goes back to one or zero, right? <laughs> but you've got that interim period where it's going to 200. So you get a period where the really crummy stocks are going up tremendously and the good stocks are losing. What does that mean? That means if you've got 100%, 100%, you've, you've actually lost more than 100% of your money. And he, so, that, so he, he literally would have gotten wiped out doing that. So while in most years, that strategy looks like higher, better, much better return to risk, in that can, situation, you get killed.
0: So it's interesting. We had a guest. Uh, do you know uh, Wesley Gray? He's a hardcore yeah. quant guy, really awesome. But we got to introduce you to, to Wes because he's just a wealth of information. He runs around with Patrick O'Shaughnessy and James O'Shaughnessy and that group. But one of the things that he did was a lot of research on what you're talking about exactly, where when you get into a really high market valuation period, kind of like where we're at right now, growth picks do extremely well and maybe not what you would necessarily think, but then they just fall off a knife's edge whenever the value picks really start doing well and the market starts having a major downturn. So it's really interesting that you kind of got the same feedback and the same information from Joel Greenblatt when you were talking. I, I really find that interesting. Yeah. And we've talked about this on our show when we had Wes on. It's a really interesting discussion. I know Wesley Gray has a lot of uh, published articles on it. Maybe we can throw some of those into the show notes to kind of complement sure. this discussion. But awesome feedback. Thank you for that, Jack. That's awesome. awesome. Yeah.
1: Well, and also, so what Greenblatt says, and this is kind of, it's cute, but true. So he, he has his three, three rules of value investing. He said, first rule is value investing works. The second rule is value investing doesn't work all the time. And rule number three is rule number two is while rule number one works.
2: <laughs>
1: if anything worked all the time, enough people would use it, it, would stop working. And it's because you get a 99 that value investing still works because if it was just a matter of buying undervalued stocks and staying with them, then everybody would do it. And it would just, you know, but it would stop. The edge would go away. But so, so anyway, that's his explanation. So the answer to the magic formula is, uh, It'll work most years, but there'll be times where it doesn't work. And it could be a prolonged time. Let's take a quick break and hear
3: from today's sponsors. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. As someone who's constantly on the road and traveling, Briggs & Riley has been a game changer that ensures my travel experience is phenomenal. I'm a satisfied customer of Briggs & Riley myself, and I can certainly tell you that their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, it has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they'll repair it free of charge, no questions asked, even if your airline damages the bag. They also just released their Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It has this new one-touch feature which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, then compress it to its original size so a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, plus many other cool features. If you want luggage that was awarded the best carry-on by Forbes, then now's the time to get it. Get your new and improved luggage at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard.
2: All right, back to the show. So Jack, one thing that's really interesting about your Greenblatt is that he's thinking as a trader, but also as an investor. So many investors, they think in terms of buying a stock, hopefully it will be undervalued, and then um, the price will eventually go up. Now, traders, they also think in terms of leveraging their own position, not necessarily using debt. But if they have a really strong opinion about where a stock is going, they might be able to get a higher payoff. One of those ways to do that is using an option. And I know that you have a very interesting story about your good friend, John Greenblatt, and how he used options to invest in Wells Fargo back in the early 1990s.
1: Yeah. So to set that up, I should say, because people have misconceptions about options being more risk and so forth. They can be more risky. The way most people use them, they are probably more risky. But the idea here is, and the way some great investors have used them that I've spoken to, and Greenblatt's one of them, that's one of the ways he got such, great, such a great track record and somebody like in the hedge fund market was like jd may's a guy who really trades like that all the time the math of the option market is that it assumes there's always an equal chance of the market going up or stock going up or stock going down and these traders realize or investors realize that there are points in time where that's not necessarily true the natural pricing of an option to be symmetrical in terms of percentage gain and percentage loss is not going to be correct and so in this case we'll false fargo he realized, well, Wells Fargo is a very, very solid stock. It was a very, very strong company. However, that, uh, that at the time they had uh, uh, their book contained a lot of real estate in California and California was having its, the real estate market was having real problems. So there was concern about the bank. But Greenblatt thought that they'd be fine. But he said, basically, there's two possibilities. If this is really going to be a problem, they're going to go bust, then it's going to be a zero. And if, like, I think, it's gonna be okay, then the stock is like tremendously underpriced. It should triple, quadruple, whatever. So his play was, and of course he didn't want to just buy the stock and leave himself take that bet, hold it to it goes to zero, that take a chance of that. What he did instead was buy out of money options. And his thinking was but an out of a money option, you're basically not going to get paid unless the market goes up or in this case the stock goes up significantly. However, it's relatively cheap. You put up a small amount of money. In this case, if the stock goes down, goes sideways, or only goes up moderately, he loses that amount. But it's a small percentage of the, of the total cost of the stock. However, if it gets to the, the strike price, and let alone if it goes well beyond the strike price, then you start getting multiples of your money. And so to him, it seemed like a really good play because the market was saying, hey, there's like a 50-50 shot of Wells Fargo going broke versus you know, being okay. In his mind, it was much better than a 5050 shot, they'd be okay, and he played it in a way that if he was right, he'd get paid multiples of what he was risking. So that was the basic concept of the trade. You know the end of that story is, I don't know, went up like four times or whatever.
0: Four hundred percent return. Yep. So Jack, one of the things that I really liked about your book is some of the people that you've interviewed through the years really kind of have just crazy or like really interesting approaches to making money. And they're successful at it. That's the thing that's just so mind-blowing for me. Like One example that comes to mind was the guy from your hedge fund book, the Hedge Fund Market Wizards book, where he was breaking all the phones and just kind of seemed like he had this wild and rampant personality. And then another one was the, the gentleman that your son worked for, who was actually oh. betting in the exact opposite direction oh. of whatever the market was trending, and yet he was still able to make money. So- I guess my question is this, is what was one of the more interesting investing approaches that you've come across with all these different interviews? What would you say that you took away from interviewing that person that maybe you could actually apply to your own approach?
1: Boy, so it's a really bifurcated question because the latter part of that is like, what did I take away and and what I learned, that type of stuff. And there's lots of answers to that. And that has a positive answer. Then you began with a couple of people. And the second one you mentioned, the one that my son worked for, uh, Jimmy Ballademus. If you go through books, one of the things you note is, or most people realize is, hey, all these guys are doing something different. You know, it's like they're they're just nothing like each other. It's not like a bunch of guys doing the same thing. So you got people all over the map. However, if your question had been, who was the most different trader, you know, style-wise, who used the most different approach versus everybody else, it would be Jimmy Ballademus. Because here's a guy who's using an approach that it just flies in the face of everybody. You know, it's just counter to everybody's advice. It's counter to what everybody does. It's something like, if you told me somebody does what Ballademus does, I said, this guy's going to blow up in, in, in a year or two. And he's been doing it for, I don't know, 20 years, whatever he's been doing it for. First of all, what does he do? <laughs> so... What Jimmy Valdemus does is he has this personality where he has to be opposite everybody. He can't stand to be, he always has to be fighting everybody. He has to be on the opposite side of everybody. And the more people are crazy about something, the more he wants to be on the opposite side of it. So you get markets where extreme markets like, uh, and it, he trades both stocks and commodities, but to talk about some of the commodity examples, because they're the really extreme ones. If your audience might remember silver, well, I don't know how four or five years, six years ago, I forget exactly what year it was, but where silver was really going straight up and it, it went all the way up into the 40s and eventually got to low 50s. well, oh, and it's going almost vertical. Who's selling silver? Well, there's Jimmy selling silver right into that uptrend <laughs> at 45, 46, you know. And, you know, you had the cotton market, the cotton market that had, since the Civil War, had never gone to a dollar, goes to like more than. Above two dollars, and it does the last part in just a very short period of time. Just like another cliff, and who's selling? Who's selling cotton when it's like two dollars? That's Baldina. So he steps steps in front of freight trades, and and not only that, it'll be one thing if he did that and then just held the position when he, when the markets eventually crashed. But then when, on the first good break, he takes his profits. It's like insane, but no, he has to be he has to find something else to fight. So. Uh, so that's, that's the style he does. And, and the reason why, and you know, And by the way, I say in, in that book, the first line of that chapter is, Jimmy Ballademus breaks all the rules. And the first line of my, my conclusion to that chapter is, or the first line or second line is, something along the line is, don't try this at home.
2: You know, nobody, <laughs> trade,
1: nobody trade this way. I don't want anybody to trade this way. How do I know he's for real? Because, my, like I say, my son worked for him. And so he was the he raged the interview and all that. So what I knew from my, my son worked in the firm and everybody knew that Jimmy was like this guy who, who produces uh, multi, you know, billion uh, dollar results almost every year. First day I go to interview him, set the scene. This is like the end of the first quarter. I forget which year it was, but it was a year, it was like 11, 2011, I think. But it was one of those years where the stock market was going up almost every day. And the first quarter had been up pretty steadily, And that March, the month I went to visit him, it was one of those days, the market couldn't go more than three or four days without making a new high. So if you were like short, I mean, you just, you couldn't grasp, you couldn't couldn't catch your breath. It was just like down a day up again, you know, it's like, and so at the end of the month, very end of the month, last day of the month, I think it was, the market's down 2%. And there was some story about, I think, Libya or something. And there was some excuse for the market to go down and sold off. And so I go into his office and he's got the monitors. Uh, my son's there too. And all the screens are like all red. Everything's like all red. Because that was the day the market was down, right? And it turned, no, sure, sure enough, of course, he's been short everything, right? So, look, it's one day the market's down. And first of all, he's there, good like a, You think a guy's been short, a market's gone straight up. Finally a day, the market's down 2%. Everything, the whole screen's red. He's short. You think the guy would be like, you wouldn't know if you won or lost that day. I came on a day he was losing. He'd be the same way. Just like you know, that's the, that's the way it was. How's the guy short a market that goes up every day, virtually not every day, but it's going up almost every day of the, the month? Gets one day where it's down and still ends up breaking even. How do you do that? So the thing is, and this is where this is where he makes the money. This is where his skill is, and this is what you can't. This is something you can't uh, teach but he's always taking profits. He's always taking money off the table. So he's short a stock, and it's a, it's a terrible trade. The stock's gonna go from 50 to 100, but he's short. So he goes short, let's say he's short at 50. The stock ticks that, opens up 49 and a half. He sells some of it, goes up 51, you know, I mean, I'm sorry, he buys it back, and then goes up to 51, he'll sell it again. So he's constantly taking these little profits along the way. And so even though he's wrong in the trend, He's making his profits on these because he's just capturing money off the table continuously. And he trade, he does it. He does doing about five hundred trades a day according to my son. So that's how he was making his money. But he could have made a lot more money if he did the same thing with the trend. But he insisted on doing it against the trend. So to me it
0: just seems like the, that you would eventually blow up with using that approach. And but you're the, saying he's. Doing it, He's still he's been, been doing
1: him. it for a long time, and I don't—I can't tell you how I would have to, been the first one to say the same thing, Preston. I would have been the first one, and I would have said it's impossible. Nobody could trade this way, and maybe, maybe he won't get away with his ever. But it's been a long, long time where he's been doing it, and so. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anybody should, I really mean it, don't trade that way. It's, it's heavy. 9,999 people out of 10,000 will go broke doing this, and, and the last one out of 1,000 will lose 80% of their money, so nobody <laughs>
2: trades. This wraps up our first part interview with Jack Swager. Stay tuned for the next episode where we continue the discussion with Jack and learn more about fundamentals in trading and how to measure your performance in investing.